Our solar system is a wondrous place with a single star, our sun, and everything that orbits around it, planets, moons, asteroids, and comets. What do we know about this beautiful solar system we call home? It's part of an even larger cosmos with billions of other solar systems. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. Gravity Assist. With me is Andy Rear, author of the bestseller The Martian and now Artemis, a thriller set on the moon, and we're talking about the fascinating intersection of science fiction and science. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know, I usually ask this question at the end of an interview, but it seems more appropriate to begin with, and that is really how science inspired you to get into writing science fiction. What was your gravity assist, Andy? Well, uh, probably my father. Um, he he's a he's a scientist himself. He's a he's an excel, a linear accelerator physicist. He, he's retired now, but he spent his whole career, uh, you know, shooting electrons down a tube, and um, so he's always been a science dork and a science fiction fan. And he had an inexhaustible supply of sci-fi books in the house for me to read. So I guess you could say I was indoctrinated from birth. I see. So so you had an opportunity to read the library. So what oh, were sure. some of your favorite authors? Well, um, my holy trinity, so to speak, are Heinlein, Asimov, and Clark. Um, so because I'm, you know, I'm 45 years old, but I grew up reading my father's science fiction collection. So I grew up reading, uh, you know, juveniles from the 50s and 60s and early 70s. But, you know, that still holds up really well. Some of them do. Yeah, some... So, Parts of them don't. <laughs> parts of them didn't age well, but other parts of them still hold up really well, especially when they decided to stick with real physics. What really surprised you about Mars when you're doing the research for your first book? Well, I mean, I had a lot of fun doing the research, and that's always the the part I've, of writing that I enjoy the most. Um, I guess the I already knew a lot about it to start with because I've spent my life being a space dork. Um, I feel like I'm in a building where that uh, where I, where that's very much accepted here at NASA's headquarters in DC, but um, I uh, I've I've always been into it. So I started with more than a layman's knowledge of this stuff. But a few things I discovered while researching Mars that I didn't know before was I, I didn't realize how fast Phobos's orbit really was, how ludicrously close to the planet it is. It's it's within the geosync, well, Mars's, whatever Mars's geosync is called. Mm, well, well within it, actually. <laughs> well within it. And in fact, it's nearing the Roche limit. It's probably going to be a ring in a few hundred thousand years. But um, so that means that even though Phobos and Deimos both go um, the same direction around Mars, if you're on the surface of Mars, they appear to be going opposite directions because Phobos is going around Mars faster than Mars can rotate. That's one thing I found really interesting. I was also fascinated by, uh, you know, Olympus Mons, you know, on Mars is the tallest mountain in the solar system, but it also has an incredibly wide base, almost the size of the state of Texas. And so the grade is so gradual that the curvature of the planet actually has more of an effect on the horizon than the grade. So you could be standing on, you know, on the on the slopes, for lack of a better word, of Olympus Mons, and you would think you're in a flat plane. Yeah, it's really spectacular. And this is one of the 
One of the features that a lot of our, our scientists point to that say that says Mars doesn't have plate tectonics. And right. so as magma just pokes through the surface, it just sits there and accumulates. Mm -hmm. Well, then, I was I'm going to interrupt you there because yeah, yeah. I have a very exciting uh, for me, news to share in that, you know, so recently, I guess within the past year, they were able to prove that Mars had an active volcano that lasted over over a billion, over two billion years, maybe. Mm -hmm. what, what? How long was it that they could, on that order? Yes, on that order. OK. And the way they were able to prove that is by examining uh, a, a specific shergatite. Uh, a, a meteorite that had that had fallen to Earth but originated on Mars, and they were able to analyze that and prove that it came from basically the same lava source that these other sugarites came from, and that proved, oh wow, that same lava source has been active for like two billion years. Well, that sugarite that they did the proof with mm -hmm. is uh, my per I, I have a sugarite at home, a Mars rock wow. at home. That was one of my, that was a, a, a little gift from me to me with my Martian okay. money. I Got have it, it at home wow. and it is that same one. It's the same, really? it's, the, it's a, mine is a different piece from the same yeah, fall, but it's the, the same meteorite. Wow. And so it was funny when I was reading that news, because of course I, you know, read space news. I was like, and it's from this NWA 7635. I don't know if that's the correct number, but, and I was like, wait, that sounds familiar. And I go and go into my living room and look at the little plaque I have, because of course I have it on a little display right. case and right. stuff like that. I'm like, eh, that's my meteorite. All right. Sugar well, tight. Hang on to it. You know me. Well, me. no, I'm not going to be giving it away. It costs a lot. That's <laughs> <Yes>, true. <laughs> May have uh, other secrets. <laughs> Secrets to uh, to behold, but you know this is really important. Why we need to do that next Mars mission, the sample return mission? Oh, absolutely. We're going to core rock and we're going to bring that back, and that's going to tell us how fast the climate on Mars changed. That sounds fantastic. Uh, when are you going to launch that? In, in, the, in, in Mars uh, 2020 is it called? Uh -huh. And and that'll collect the sample. I'm I'm still catching up on some of the details. That'll collect the samples and leave them behind for a future return mission. Right. Yeah. So what it's going to do uh, once we land it in a geologically diverse area, probably where their water has modified the minerals, you know, where the ancient shoreline mm -hmm. on Mars has been, it will start coring rock. It it, it cores uh, about three inch long uh, chalk like. To, uh, 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 cylindrical uh, core samples. Volume. Core samples, yeah, thank you. And then we put them in a, a sleeve, a metal sleeve. And then we lay, after we do several of those, we lay them in a pile mm -hmm. and then we move on. Right. And then uh, later on, we're going to come pick them up, take them back to a Mars Ascent vehicle. You're going to, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and then we'll bring it all back because uh, we really want to interrogate those in the laboratory. That's oh, yeah. where the gold is, you know, to bring back those samples and really study them. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it is, it, yeah, I mean, you guys are sending entire laboratories to Mars to look at the samples, but boy, they're nothing compared to what we can do on Earth with our facilities here. Yeah, that's the whole point. Now, right now we call it Mars 2020. But, you know, uh, uh, next year we're thinking about uh, having some sort of contest where we'll have uh, kids from across the country name it. Sure, that's how you named Curiosity. And, and, and spurred an opportunity and Sojourner. Okay. So that's an important <clears throat> next step that we'll do. And, and uh, that's really all. You know, about they're just going to call it like Marzi McMars face. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be like the top voted one. That's that's the thing now. <laughs> well, we hope not. But that's uh, I'm sure we'll get that as a uh, as a as an entry. And it'll be from Andy Weir, at least. <laughs> oh, no, I'll be I'll be much nicer. <laughs> okay, than that. All right, all right. You know, uh, the concepts that that came out in your book, The Martian, that I really enjoyed is that is that concept of what happens when humans first get to Mars. 
Why did you pick that era that's just around the corner to write about? Well, I wanted it to take place as close to the modern day as possible, but I needed to give us enough time in the in the fictional future to actually develop the technologies that would be necessary. And the main the main um, kind of tech that's in the Martian that we don't have in reality yet is the strength of the ion drive that Hermes uses. Like the the technology is all proven, it works. Um, but we don't have the we don't have anything like the scale that would be necessary for it. So I gave us about 20 years to work that out. Well, you know, uh, the, the way the movie was portrayed and the, the art direction and, and uh, you know, things that Art Max did was, was oh, yeah. really spectacular. Absolutely I mean, he beautiful. really made it a beautiful movie. Oh, yeah. You know, what was it like to see The Martian in the theater for the very first time for you? Oh, man, it was great. So Fox brought me into, you know, on, on, onto their lot and, and we watched it in one of those little, you know, theater test test theater rooms where they watch it internally. And um, it, the the first cut I saw, it it was missing most of its special effects. So there are a bunch of, you know, just people walking around in front of green screens or big obvious or no visors, no visors, right? Or big obvious black wires holding them up in the in the zero G scenes. And but still, I'll tell you, like right at the beginning when it started that intro and it put like The Martian up on mm -hmm. screen, I I cried. Oh wow! Well, I mean, I, I, I can understand course. that. Yeah, yeah, of course. There's your baby. <laughs> That's my baby. <laughs> There's your baby. Well, I'm here with Andy Weir, and we're having a great time talking about science and science fiction. And uh, tell me about your new book, Artemis. Well, um, Artemis takes place in a city on the moon, uh, humanity's first uh, off-Earth uh, city. And uh, the main character is a woman who's a small-time criminal, and she gets in way over her head. Way over her head, I might add. Yeah, and it's uh, it's less about uh, it's less about like national space exploration and more about the colonization of space. So the stuff that happens a little bit later on. And I uh, so I had to come up with an economic reason why the city of Artemis exists, and and so on. Yeah, man, I thought you did it really well, and it's very exciting to. To, to see how, uh, you know, as a science fiction writer, you can think about the future. You know, uh, I, always, I always say if we don't spend time thinking about our future, we don't have a future. Yeah. And I think science fiction plays a very important role in that. Yeah, everybody's got it. You, it every, every reality starts with a dream, right? Every reality starts with a dream, exactly. You know, what kind of lunar science research did you do to really help write that book? Well, quite a lot. And um, actually, th yeah, the vast majority of that information came from uh, the Apollo missions. Um, mainly, I needed to know the um, I needed to know the mineral breakdown of of the ores that are available on the surface. And what I learned was just amazing. I I had no idea that the moon was being so cooperative in in us colonizing it. Um, Eighty five percent of the rocks in the lunar highlands are anorthite which is aluminum, silicon, calcium, and oxygen all put together into a very, very stable molecule. Um, if you can break that apart, you end up with aluminum to build your moon city and oxygen to fill it. I mean, the moon is made of moon bases, just some assembly required. <laughs> and that, that was just the most awesome part. From there, I'm like, okay, how do I smelt anorthite? And I'm like, well, it takes a ludicrous amount of energy. Okay, fine, we're gonna need a ludicrous amount of energy. We're gonna need some reactors, uh, you know, it would be cheaper to ship the entire city to the moon than it would be to ship the solar panels necessary to smelt anorthite. So it's going to have to be reactor. And I just kind of built out from there how the city got built and how it grew and how to make maximum use of 
the resources on the moon. In fact, they would generate so much oxygen that the citizen, the people in the city can't breathe it fast enough. They'd still be venting it out into space. And, and oxygen is really handy. So, you know, for every kilogram of hydrogen you want to bring to the moon, you can make nine kilograms of water. <laughs> you know, this is really uh, thinking ahead in the sense that uh, just in the last few years, there's been quite a bit of thinking about how to go out into our solar system, go to asteroids, uh, potentially go to the moon and be able to mine and get those resources. And, and I think your book goes right at that, uh, that a very important point. That's in our future. Well, possibly, although to be fair, all of their mining and resource collection is to build out the city itself. So that, that works out to be economically neutral for them. It's like they get the resources from the moon, they use the resources on the moon. They don't really export it to Earth. It's still cheaper e even within the setting of Artemis to just w mine whatever you want on the planet you're on. <laughs> Um, well, indeed, typically the concept is we would want to mine material and then use it in that framework, mm -hmm. use it in space. And so uh, having space helps sustain us mm -hmm. as we move out, uh, you know, go well beyond low Earth orbit. It's just a, a, a critical new way of thinking. And well, I think your book really hits that. Thanks. Yeah, it's building out infrastructure, right? It's no different than the like westward expansion. You don't you don't go straight to California. You you build railroad <laughs> stations along the way. Absolutely. You know, some people say, well, why go back to the moon? And I think, um, as you point out in the book, there's all kinds of different reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my my the whole conceit of Artemis is based on it takes place in the 2080s time frame and where the price to low Earth orbit has been driven down. And it's been driven down far enough that middle class people can afford to go to space. Once you have that, you have economics in space. You have a tourist destination. Artemis is 40 kilometers away from the Apollo 11 landing site, a.k.a. Tranquility Base. And um, there's a visitor's center built there. So you stay in pressure and look through windows at it. And, and the, uh, the, the historical site is, of course, very well protected and they don't let anybody mess with it. <laughs> well, you know, all those, I think, were really critical aspects of your book in terms of how the whole plot evolves and, and what happens to the what happens to Jazz and, <laughs> and her friends. Yeah. And uh, what kind of advice do you have uh, to those um, uh, budding science fiction writers that, <laughs> that would follow your footsteps? Well, I guess uh, for not just science fiction, but any any writers, uh, the first step is you have to actually write. Um, you can get stuck in world building and daydreaming and planning it out forever, but you're not actually writing until you're putting words into your word processor. Um, and so you have to actually sit down and do it. And that's when you start to notice the problems. That's why it's not fun. It's fun to sit there and go like, oh, this will be my five book series. But when you start writing it, you're like, oh, I see all the problems now. <laughs> uh, so that's step one. Step two, and this is difficult, but more important, um, resist the urge to tell your story to your friends and family especially if it's good it's even worse if it's good because they'll be egging it they'll be like, wait and then what happens oh tell me more tell me more you have to you have to not do that the the reason is most writers are driven by a desire to have an audience we're driven not all but most of us i certainly am we want other people to experience the stories that we've created and by telling the story to people verbally, it satisfies that need and saps your will to actually write the thing. So if you make yourself a rule that says, okay, no one can find out anything about my story except by reading it, then that motivates you. At the very least, to motivate you, okay, I'll finish this chapter and then I'll give it to my buddy to get his feedback and, and so on. 
you know, that must be the case because I think, well, while we had chit-chatted in a couple events, uh, you know, about the Martian and, and at uh, various stages along the way, I had asked you about your next book and, and you were, That's well, cagey. you were pretty darn cagey. <laughs> I couldn't get any information out of you on that. Yeah, I have to, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, following my own advice there. I have to. So I assume you're working on another project. Or another I am. Idea. I okay. am. Um, uh, my next, my next project. Well, this, this is my plan is that my next project would be a follow-up book to Artemis that also takes place in Artemis, but jazz is not the main character. It's, it's a different person and it's a different story. Um, I would love to write a bunch of stories that all take place in Artemis as it goes forward, as it moves forward through its own history. And, uh, and I, I just love that. Like with Terry Pratchett's Discworld and, um, other authors that have a consistent setting, the setting seems incredibly solid and tangible after you're a few books in. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, now there's quite a bit of thinking about how the moon, or at least being near the moon in 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 a uh, what's called a gateway, uh, could help us move then to Mars. And I think what we'll see over the next several years is a lot more thinking about going back to the moon and doing a variety of science. Mm. Well, I think the moon would be fantastic for a stepping stone on the way to Mars, because if Artemis really existed, a manned Mars mission would be monumentally easier because you have this entire infrastructure, including fuel generation and metalworking and everything like that, in a gravity well that's considerably lower than Earth's. <laughs> it would be real nice. It would be. I, <laughs> yeah. I understand completely. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I can wait to 2070, though. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, I don't think uh, I don't think we're going to get to enjoy the benefits of that. I'm not going to live to be 112, which is how old I'd be when Artemis takes place. Eh, I might. I guess there's a chance. Slim. Are there any plans to go back to Mars? Well, I don't know. I mean, um, not... Uh, not as a sequel to The Martian. I may have things take place on Mars in the future, but The Martian is sort of a one-and-done story. It's, uh, I, I have never been able to come up with an idea for a sequel to it that wasn't stupid. It's like, if Mark Watney gets in trouble again, well, NASA starts to look really incompetent, right? <laughs> and if somebody else is in trouble then, and Mark is helping, then Mark isn't really the main character anymore. And it, it, was, it was really people liked Mark. And so um, I just don't see any way to make a sequel on that okay so let me but uh, mars mars itself is a setting where lots of fun stuff could happen okay so so here's jim green being a science fiction writer mm -hmm. or at least a science fiction thinker you know one of the things i really liked about the martian in in the opening of it is that you know the scientists were out they were deploying instruments the astronauts were doing a variety of things and mark was picking up samples mm -hmm. and he would say okay the samples here are uh, coarse know, and coarse, yeah. yeah and 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 they're a little dirt in there he's <laughs> throwing in the little uh, the little box and i would have loved as he goes back and gets his helmet for the last time to leave uh, the station, uh, uh, Ares 3, that he picks up that vial and takes it with him. Well, actually, in the book, he still remained an astronaut and a scientist through the whole, whole ordeal during his long trip from uh, uh, from Acidelia to Schiaparelli. Um, he deliberately would still like take samples of the area, label them, tag them, put them in a box, and leave them out on the surface for possible future sample returns. And I did have an idea of something like, ooh, we found something interesting. Now we have to go back to where Mark was at this one point. But still, uh, it's hard to make a story out of that. It, these are things that, it, it's really difficult um, because 
Some of these things that you can imagine would be unbelievably exciting if they happen in real life, but um, are not that interesting if you write it as a story. Like if, if we found like, if we just found like a sample of like, oh, oh my God, there's actually like a little microbe that we found that lives on Mars. That would be the most amazing scientific discovery of, of, of our lives. Mm -hmm. But in a movie, that's like, okay, well, so what? <laughs> are they going to invade? You, you know, so you have to, you have to really, you have to, I really have to temper my own, like, what would excite me compared to what would excite a mainstream audience of readers. Your career, you kind of really fell, and I mean really hard, <laughs> uh, uh, into the ability to write uh, science fiction. You know, what's changed in your life since then? Well, uh, you know, I was writing The Martian just as sort of a labor of love. I was posting it to my website at the time, and I spent 25 years as a computer programmer, a software engineer. And I really liked that, too, by the way. I enjoyed that job. Um, and now, like, every aspect of my life is different. I'm a pretty social guy, and I used to really like going into work in the morning, and, and there are all my coworkers, and, hey, how you doing? Let's, uh, can, you, can I buy you some coffee? Yeah, you, know, you know, whatever. And it, just that social interaction in the morning. Now what I do is I go down to my home office, and I'm by myself, and I write. You know, and, and I kind of miss that. Well, what happened um, to but, the cat? Oh, I've, well, I've got cats. Yeah, I've got cats. The cats keep me calm. I live with my girlfriend also. It's not like it's this, you know, sad, super lonely existence. But I do miss having a large group of people that I work with as part of a team. And I miss that. Uh, but other things that are awesome is uh, still probably the best week of my life was about two years ago when NASA brought me out to Johnson Space Center. And I got a week of VIP tours of everything. And I'd still just just so awesome the, the access that i have gotten to various people and places as a result of the martian there's you imagine this venn diagram that's surrounded by like awesome scientists awesome writers movie stars and, and then i'm i'm like right there in the middle i get to play with all of them <laughs> yeah that's pretty neat you're writing at a, at a at a level where all the kids in this generation just eat that up you know what kind of letters from kids do you get well, it's 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 really cool. I had no idea when I wrote The Martian that it would be such a useful educational tool, but it turns out that it is, of course, because it's basically a long series of algebra questions, and uh, with the answers later on. And I've learned that I've, I've learned that a lot of teachers are using it in the classroom. That's why we made a, a classroom edition with all the swearing toned down, um, and so that's that's fantastic. Um, but I would say that one of my if I had to just pick, I, I do get a lot of information about that from people and parents. I, I got an email just this morning uh, from a woman whose son is like um, severely autistic and doesn't really engage well with things, but loved The Martian and just like would read the book. And, and that was a method by which she could interact with him. But I think my favorite, though, was right around the time of right, right around the time the film was out in theaters, a woman sent me a picture of like, Hey, this is my little girl's Halloween costume. And the little girl, she was like, I don't know, seven, something like that, had dressed up as Commander Lewis uh, from the book for that. So she had her little astronaut outfit on. It said, you know, Lewis and Melissa Lewis on it. And she had a cardboard box that was labeled Hermes and stuff like that. And I just thought it was awesome that, uh, you know, this this little girl, uh, because of my book, decided to be an astronaut for Halloween instead of a princess, mm -hmm. you know? Well, let me tell you, uh, in um, my experience... It's gravity assists that propel our kids forward. And it's really quite a privilege to be involved in being that person that provides that gravity assist. And it's clear that you have. Oh, it was unintentional, but I'm happy about the result. <laughs> yeah, I, I congratulate you for that too, Andy. That's very important. Oh, thank, thank you. you. 
Well, Andy, you know, it's just been an absolute privilege to sit and chit chat with you and get caught up. We haven't talked in a little while. Yeah, it's been great being here. Thanks for having me again. Join us next time as we continue our virtual tour of the solar system. This is Jim Green. I'm Andy Weir, and that's Your Gravity Assist. Gravity, 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 gravity.